welcome everybody to episode 80 80 AD of the Metabolus 2 podcast, which stars me, Ben. And me, David. And this week, David, what are we doing this week, David? This week we are dipping back to, I think, 2001, March of 2001, and the third Paul McGann outing of Big Finish Audios, The Stones of Venice. Dun, dun, dun. Cool. And you had left us on a cliffhanger on the last episode <laughs> saying you had just returned from Venice. I have just returned from Venice where I admired the stones that were there. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't there and obviously you didn't, you didn't try and travel. You weren't in the 23rd century. I wasn't in the 21st century. I was in the present day. 21st uh, century. So the, two, I was in, 200 years removed. <laughs> I was 200 years removed from the action of the stones of Venice. But we were leafing through... Um, a copy of The Stones of Venice, which, of course, is a book by John Ruskin, hmm. uh, which describes the buildings of Venice, a very ah, famous book okay. uh, called The Stones of Venice, which I'm guessing, I'm guessing that Paul Mars took the title of his uh, Big Finish audio from John Ruskin's book, The Stones of Venice. I think that would be a very safe guess. I think it's a safe guess. Yep, I think mm-hmm. that's a safe, a safe guess. Mm-hmm. So we've both listened to this uh, audio uh, relatively recently. Yep. And um, we're going to give you our opinion on it. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you want to start talking about uh, casting, yeah, maybe? Yes. Well, I, I understand from the internet the fount of all <clears throat> knowledge, um, that this was actually the, f- the f- all knowledge, um, the, the f- this was actually the first uh, Big Finish audio that Paul McGann recorded. Was it? So, yeah, so as is like they do with the TV shows on the mm-hmm. old television, um, they tend to broadcast them out of order. Of this, of, mm-hmm. So I guess, you know, it gives the actor some time to get into the role right. before the kind of debut story. So this, mm-hmm. was the, uh, this was the first one recorded. It's an interesting choice to record this one first, I think, because Paul Mars does a lot with character development, especially with Charlie, that I think um, was definitely missing from the Nick Briggs uh, Sword of Orion, and not so much present in Storm Warning. So maybe this was a good one to give the actors... Uh, a sense of who their who Big Finish saw their characters as. Yes, and Charlie's very jolly. I mean, the whole you know, it's 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 very it's very Paul Mars. The whole thing. We'll probably right. go on to talk about that. But Charlie's very jolly all the way through this. Mm-hmm. It seems like she's known the Doctor rather longer than just two previous adventures. But um, well, we do have the whole pre-title sequence. So there, there's obviously yeah, I, been going true. on adventures that aren't just being broadcast. That's so the. the the missing adventures. Yeah, the successor to Big Finish will fill in those gaps. Absolutely. <laughs> gaps between gaps between gaps. Um, so yeah, so this is this is as I said, this is the first one to be recorded. Mm-hmm. We have some excellent casting. Let's just draw our attention to Michael Sherd as the Duke Orsino or mm-hmm. Orsino a Duke. Uh, Michael Sherd, of course, has had the distinction of thinking of acting opposite every Doctor. Um, from the classic series, and is, is that true? I think so. Yeah, is, isn't that not isn't that not the case? Mm-hmm. I'm pretty yeah. sure it is. Wait a second. Um, yes, first Doctor in the Ark, not the second Doctor. Beg- okay. Begging his pardon, not the second mm-hmm. Doctor. Okay. Third Doctor in the Mind of Evil, fourth Doctor yep. of Pyramids of Mars, and the Invisible Enemy, fifth Doctor in Castrovalva, where he has a really far out hat, <laughs> and, and, the, and the seventh Doctor Remembrance of the Daleks. Mm-hmm. That's a shame. It's a shame they didn't get him in to, to act with Trout. Why wasn't that the well, case? You're, you're the well, Trout expert. Well, I have no idea. Maybe he was he was busy. <laughs> Who, which one was he in with uh, Colin Baker? 
Uh, he was uh, blah, 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 um, uh, uh, yeah. He wasn't with Colin Baker, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so he, yeah, he, he, he was busy too. with the yeah. Star Wars franchise, in the world. right? Or yes, yeah, probably. Or he could have been. He could have been practicing being Hitler because he was in <laughs> Hitler in Indiana Jones and mm-hmm. the Curse of Hitler, or whatever that mm-hmm. one was called. Indiana I, Jones and the Last Crusade. That's it. I must say though that I did keep hearing. Uh, Lawrence Scarman. Yes, very Scarman. <laughs> yeah, very, very Scarman. It was a very Scarman esque uh, his portrayal of uh, Duke Orsino. Yes. Or, or, Orsino. What, it's from tw- that, that, that title is from Twelfth Night, night isn't it's it? Night. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, it is Twelfth Night. Dude, and, yeah, but I couldn't I think... find a lot of, aside from the whole, you know, this is kind of diving into the storyline, aside from yeah. the whole idea of magic, uh, I, there wasn't a lot of parallels, I thought, into Twelfth Night. Now, maybe. Maybe very, I'm, very little. Missing, I mean, I think missing. it's. I think it's. I think it's just. I think it's just the title. Uh, I think it's just Paul Paul Mars. Apparently, again, according to the internet, that Mrs. Lavish, mm-hmm. as well as being like an extremely Paul Mars style name, is from a room with a view by Ian Forster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he's just he's, he's harvesting just like, from many places because there's some yeah. there's some lines of dialogue that seem either paraphrased or lifted directly from Douglas Adams' uh, Hitchhiker's. Right. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yes. Right. yes. So I, I think yeah. he, he's a very Eclectic. literary type writer that likes to uh, call out or uh, sample right. from various previous works to make his own um, new uh, radio play. Well, he teaches creative writing, doesn't he, at some Red Brick University? Yeah, I, be- yeah, I believe he's I a lecturer so. somewhere. Yeah. He's a lecturer somewhere, as well as like a very prolific author in general. Um, I'm mm-hmm. friends with him on Facebook. Ah. He's, yeah, it's, it's interesting stuff. He's, um, yeah, no, it's, it's, he's, he's, worth, he's worth seeking out. So Michael Sherd, who is fabulous, uh, mm-hmm. obviously English people will also remember him as, uh, as the bewigged Mr. Bronson, the headmaster from Grange Hill, mm. as well, of course, as a headmaster. He played a remember mm-hmm. the Daleks as well. So it's great to hear Michael Sherd, and he was, it's a very, very Michael Sherdy part. Um, there's a lot of kind of like uh, avuncular booming and things he's he's excellent it's great i mean this is apparently this is the last thing he did um before his untimely death in 2005 so mm-hmm. um so he ends yeah. with doctor who ends with doctor who. um we've also we're also welcoming barnaby edwards <laughs> as the returning what i'm hoping <laughs> the return the returning the returning barnaby edwards as what i'm hoping though the visuals don't uh, there are no visuals of this because it's an audio i'm hoping he looks exactly like a fish person <laughs> Um, from Underwater Menace <laughs> as an aqua gondolier of some kind. Uh, they seem to be more amphibian, so I'm guessing more frog-like in appearances. Uh, but Charlie thought he was rather built, so I think it's just the hands and feet that are webbed. Yeah, That's implied. Yeah. Uh, Although uh, some of his people, the gondoliers, can live underwater, so that would imply gills of some sort. Some element of fishiness. So maybe mm-hmm. they're axolotl people or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Right. You know, with Barnaby Edwards, I kept his uh, Italian accent isn't that much further away from his South African accent. So I kept hearing <laughs> Rathbone from uh, Storm Warning. Well, there you go. It's, it's, it's the, he's the, it's, it's the, the great, 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 great grandson of Rathbone or something. I don't know. Yeah, it must be. Yeah, okay. something like that. I know. And then also, of course, um, uh, starring uh, Mark Gatiss as well. As he yes, was... which a very recognizable voice there, and he was almost playing to type there with the uh, cult leader, the, oh, God, the yes. high priest, yes, well, Vincenzo. 
Yeah, I mean, this is total, total Master Mandragora uh, style mm. cult there. I mean, that's exactly what was being done with that one, I think. Well, it's it's almost like uh, the shorts that he did with David Waldman on one of the DVDs or during the wilderness years where they were just taking a send-up of Doctor Who. Doctor, or, yes, all that yeah, kind of stuff. So, yeah. so it's just a lot of the acting in this was acting, just over the top. Yeah, which is very Paul Marzi, I think. You know, I mean, the whole mm. thing was kind of a piss take a little bit. You know, it's very, very stagey. I mean, maybe that's behind, you know, Miss, well, Miss Lavish is just a Paul Marzi style yeah. name. But maybe that's what's behind calling the Duke Orsino. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, they're very, very stagey, very, very boomy. Mm-hmm. Very, very... Um, so yeah, as well as... Um, uh, well, so what did you think of Elaine Eve's Cameron and then Ali- as uh, Eleanor Lavish? Uh, I thought she was good. Again, she was a bit, uh, uh, a bit. Uh, what's the word? Uh, you know, the whole thing was a bit theatrical. Um, but that was yes. good. That was fine. That was fine because it, it's it suited the material. She, of course, uh, is 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 was uh, not not of course because I didn't know. But anyway, she was in Stones of Blood as Martha, one of the cult. Um, followers of um, uh, 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 the Kaliak, Cesara Diplos. Yeah, Cesara Diplos, the Kaliad. Yeah, the Kaliad. Uh, 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 really, she was absolutely Martha. yes. This is what the internet wow. told me when I was looking <laughs> that up. Um, which is great because I mean, again, you know, then she's got a connection with being a cult mm-hmm. and um, and I, Doctor Who and Doctor Who. Yeah. And, and again, I mean, in some ways, if you're a super Doctor Who fan, which I guess both of us are, but anyway. I was vaguely hoping, even though, of course, I knew it wasn't going to be the case, that the Stones of Venice would turn out to be the Ogre. Oh, that would have been an interesting twist on the... If the, if the Stones were more than just the title. Exactly. exactly. So, I, I mean, they're either, going to be, they're either going to be the Ogre or they're going to be like Mick Jagger and, and the Rolling Stones of Venice. <laughs> um, oh, if, if only the band was as good as uh, the Rolling Stones. Oh, the, 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 music. the music. music left something to be desired. Oh, and again, I can only... Apparently, the music's... Again, it's... It's been released uh, on like yes, music for yes. Big Finish. Yes, um, I can't think why because it's. I mean, I can only imagine well, they were trying to evoke a kind of Star Wars style cantina band effect of like future jazz music, yeah. but it was pants. God, yeah, yeah. No, the music was very 1980s Doctor Who styling, but not of the good kind. It was uh, yes. It just it just was not. Good. Good. <laughs> no, and the, I mean, it really took with the the whole kind of ball, you know, masked ball, you know, standard standard issue Venetian masked ball thing. It completely mm-hmm. took you out of that action because it didn't sound like you know it should sound like eyes wide shut or something or I don't know. I don't um, know. So I've yeah. been listening to just ambient noises from Venice for the previous podcast, just kind of get you in the mood, right? Yeah. Get, get me in the mood, and <laughs> at night, I, that there's certainly piano music was certainly. There, you could hear it going over St. Mark's uh, Plaza with like, yep, the girl, yep. girl from Ipanema, which is do, not do, really, do, do, yeah, do, really do, not do. Yeah. what you would be thinking of in Venice. But so, yeah, piano music certainly was fitting, but that I just uh it it didn't work for me and then just the yeah. si- the the piano music didn't work for me and the synth music didn't work for me and it seemed yeah. very very heavy-handed forcing the emotions well i mean i mean you know just to play the i've just been to venice card for a second i mean all italian <laughs> cities are super noisy at night right um because italians love to make a lot of noise they never go to bed they're always playing music Venice is kind of noisy, especially when you're on the canal because all the vaporettos run up and run, you know, pretty much all night because you know people are doing stuff. Right. So that's kind of noisy. And yeah, it's Mark Square. They have, you know, there's there's piano music playing, you know, 
uh, a, sex, a selection of classical hits again pretty much all the way through the night so yes it is mm-hmm. it is a kind of a musical town but again I mean if we are trying to kind of evoke as I'm sure we were trying to evoke the kind of era of you know the kind of Venice decadence of kind of Casanova's time right. in the you know uh, 18th 18th century or so um, we weren't doing a good job with that music in my opinion at all that's another nit I guess I have to pick with it is it it didn't seem very futuristic to me and it it seemed like a story out of place in time it might have been better set in the past but they wanted Venice to be um, doomed that the the curse was just accelerating the collapse of Venice right and right. like the Duke seemed out of place in time and if he had been ruling say since for a hundred years so he would have been alive roughly maybe in 50 years born in about 50 years time what has the world changed that much that venice now has a ruling duke again it just the whole the whole timing of the political structure didn't seem to fit did very seem, well for it me. Did seem weird. I, and I, I didn't actually feel that a hundred years was a very long time actually no. it was like oh i've been alive for a hundred years well, so what? Like, mm-hmm. lots of people have been alive for a hundred years. It's, right. That's actually not that long a time. So why right. are you moaning? Right. I mean, they should have, it should have been like a thousand years. Which um, would have... Or 500 years. You know, it should have been a time that felt like an amount of years that might have felt like a burden of some mm-hmm. kind. Or, or just something that would have allowed or just had the gondoliers evolve webbing between their fingers and their toes. Because a uh, hundred years for that kind of evolution just doesn't seem to make... It just it defies... It defies, it defies logic, yeah. It defies well, logic. again, you see, I mean, I, I think as well as hoping for the ogre to turn up and, and become <laughs> the eponymous stones of Venice, I was also hoping, you know, again, like uh, the underwater menace, for there to be my mad scientist mm-hmm. who was, you know, turning the gondoliers into fish people. But that didn't happen either. So, uh, you know, uh, instead there was quite a lot of kind of mithering around and being kind of like generically witty about things. Right. I mean, I think Paul Mars would very much like to be Oscar Wilde mm. and Bon Mo's were flitting backwards and forwards between everybody mm-hmm. with kind of monotonous regularity. Yeah, well, like Churchwell, who uh, Nick Scoville oh, yes. played. His characterization seemed very similar to uh, Michael Scherz's Duke Orsino, just on the opposite side of the coin, to use a cliche. They're, they're both kind of... Uh, obsequious in their own way one is a kiss up and one is a kiss down i guess they're just yeah it's just that the the lethargy and the sloth which was part of the theme the decadence that pietro kept referring to is certainly evident but it did get to be a little bit uh, as a listener you just kind of want to go up and slap on the silly a little bit <laughs> sort of like snap out of it your whole city your whole world is submerging you don't actually have to stay there yeah yeah so it's and again i think actually like a lot of other kind of paul mars joints you know it's kind of was set in no time at all you know it's yes. like it's in it's in the kind of paul mars verse which is just <laughs> kind of like you know whimsical decadent um camp future just, of some kind it's just down the door from neil gaiman's world <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's, it's, he's, he's, he's like a cat. Well, I, 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 if, he, if he's listening, hi, 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 Paul. Um, I'm sure he delightful. He delight. It'd be delighted for me to call him a camp Neil Gaiman because um, that's that's kind of what he is. He's mm-hmm. like Neil Gaiman only super camp um, with a beard. Uh, so uh, yeah, it's 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 in the Marsverse basically, mm-hmm. and I'm sure 
if I knew more about his writing and if I'd read all of that he's written and mm-hmm. listened to all that he's written, I'd probably... Th- I mean, I'm sure characters turn up. I'm sure, you know, Miss Lavish turns mm-hmm. up again or something or so, you know, whatever. Yeah, so what other things did Mars write? I know he's written a lot. He's written a lot of novelizations. Mm-hmm. Um, he's the person behind, of course, Iris Wildtime, mm-hmm. um, okay. who is, you know, the time traveling traveler who has a time traveling device that's that's bigger on the outside than it is on the inside, mm-hmm. which I, I was kind of like, um, and is played, of course, on Big Finish by Katie Manning. Right. He is also, he's got a bunch of other stuff that he's written. Um, he's also, he's kind of a reasonably good artist. He does kind of illustrations for things. One key way, I think, to understand the Mars verse in general is he just edited a a guide, which I haven't bought, even though I'm kind of tempted to buy it, a guide to the Doctor Who annuals of mm. the 60s, 70s, mm. and 80s, particularly mm-hmm. the stories in the Doctor Who annuals. Now, I don't know whether you... Yeah. Have, you, you <laughs> have you read any of those? Yeah, they were, they were on the DVDs as extras, so of course. Absolutely. So they are, <laughs> yeah, uh, which, which are, you know, they are Doctor Who, but not the Doctor Who that you were expecting um, kind, of, <laughs> kind of stories. Right. And I think that's the kind of stories that Paul Mars likes to write, is kind of Doctor Who, but kind of just a little bit camp or queer mm, or okay. strange or like slightly divorced from what you would expect right. Doctor Who to be. So I mean I think that's the way to get into his writing is mm-hmm. imagining that this is that this is a story from from a, from a Doctor Who annual, uh, from a Doctor Who annual of some kind. Yeah, that I think that's a really good assessment. It's a good fit. It 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 works but it's not quite slots in it's a, it's the half step out of time so to speak yeah which you know which i think is fine and and again you know if you it's, I, the other thing i was that as well as the mask of uh, mandragora which i think this uh you know with the cultists right, that this right. story very very strongly evokes i think and the other thing that was evoking for me was actually the another mask um the mask of the red death with mm. um vincent price the roger right. corman movie from the 60s where everybody gets you know there's a plague and everyone gets locked in a room um but then the plague's in the room with them and so the kind of final scene spoilers alert with you know the countess the reincarnated uh well the not reincarnated that is still existing the countess was like, and you're all, you're all, you're all trapped in this room. Um, that was reminding me of that, and that is right. that kind of, you know, silly, silly decadence is another thing that mm-hmm. he does. I think, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. My initial note after listening to the whole thing was that there's a uh, more plot in that first pre-title hook than there really is in the entire four-part story because when they meet Miss Lavish. It's she's yep. she's all all mysterious. It's the very first person that they meet in twenty third century Venice, and I labeled her in big uh, big letters Chekhov's alien because the only <laughs> only reason she's in there is I mean you wouldn't have this character unless she was significant, and right. so you know with the whole theory of Chekhov's gun if you if you remove everything that is irrelevant to the story so only the relevant bits remain so here we have Chekhov's alien or Mars alien uh, just waiting there she's the very first person that they meets <laughs> in twenty third century Venice and. 
I mean, she she gives everything away in their first meeting. So, I mean, she says, I am too old to go gallivanting off. Uh, this is where I belong. Everything I have is here. Uh, I do not have time to start up anywhere again. And then the doctor says, you know, doctor says something like, oh, the Venice sinking was always in the cards. And then she goes, ha, 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 in the cards. That's, oh, that's rich. That's very good. And, you know, so the whole hint that the whole bit of the card game. And then at the very, very end, and it's just so, I, I as a listener, I found this so annoying, especially in retrospect, as she goes, uh, uh, right when there's when she she won't tell them more, and obviously if she right. would have told them a problem, the, the, the whole thing would have, the story wouldn't have happened. <laughs> but, exactly. But she goes, she goes, uh, this is as much as you'll get from me, my dears. I've said as usual far too much. Uh, perhaps you'll hear from me again. Oh yes, I'm sure we'll bump into each other as the uh, situation or the cataclysm uh, sorts itself out or worsens. Uh, uh, right. I've told quite a bit for now. <laughs> and then she goes off to look at art because she loves art. And then later on, the Duke has no interest in art and that uh, upsets Churchwell. And Churchwell reminds her that Estella loved art. And it's sort of like, yes, all the clues are there. Yeah. And they're yeah. really blatant in retrospect. But just the fact that they meet the alien or Estella, Miss Eleanor Lavish, right away. And yeah. she she explains the whole setup of the curse and the plot and and just sort of like you could just say the whole thing that uh, it just why are you doing any of this yes and it was just very forced that oh she, and she's an old lady but then the, then she's a hag and the duke duke sticks her on the throne and it's, it's sort of like midway through all the little foreshadowing things that Mars did uh, just clicked and it's sort of like oh. This is all we're gonna get. It, I I hope it's something more, but no, it's it's she's this magical alien, and yeah, she's she is she's a magic, a magical throne. alien. She's not just like a regular yeah. alien. She's like a she's a she's a magical alien, right? Who has right. magical powers, which are always kind of irritating. Yeah, it's magic. It's not science. It's not that she has a dimensional engine you know whatever it, it it's yeah. they don't even do the techno babble with it it's it's a magical jewel necklace that opens up like eyes and uh, the light is too bright and it just consumes them and and the curse is lifted Baha, and, and venice yeah. is back above water and or something yeah right and there's not even a sound effect for that kind of happening in, <laughs> in, in a kind of well any the, kind yeah of the sound way. effect is a, the lack of the crowd loop uh, the shrieking crowd loop <laughs> <laughs> they, they they turn crowd loop to off. Yes, and, and that's the sound effect. No, and it's it's. I actually can't remember listening to this the first time round. Um, I think I kind of tuned it out and got bored, and maybe just did something else for a bit, and then it was over. Right. Uh, but so I know. But again, you know, I, I even the second listen when I knew that I, you know, I, I I wanted I wanted some better aliens to turn up, and I wanted there to be a mad scientist. And you know, an explanation for the gondoliers, which is a mad scientist, and an explanation right. for the Stones of Venice, which would be Ogre or something, you know, some kind of other silicon based evil, um, which, you know, obviously Doctor Who can conjure up, you know, any number of sil- right. silicon based evils. But for it to be just another mad old lady. Mm-hmm. And again, if you, you know, if you listen to or read stuff from the Mars verse, it generally is a mad old lady. Mm-hmm. Um, that's his favorite character. And obviously, you know, he's the, the guy who came up with Iris Wildtime, who is a great character. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Katie Manning really kind of breathes life into that character. Right. But, you know, if, if Paul Mars has written a story with a mad old lady in it once, he's written a story with a mad old lady in it about a million times. Mm-hmm. That's, 
the person that he enjoys writing for the most. Right. And again, this is an early an early piece right. from him, but you know, to have a mad old lady. Oh yeah, it's a mad old lady. It's a Paul Mars story. Mm-hmm. Yes, here she mm-hmm. comes. She's all mad right. and whimsical and, <laughs> and and magical and, and magical. And you get the impression. And this is you know again, hi Paul. I hope you're enjoying this. Um, you get the impression that. <laughs> That Paul Mars would like to be a mad old lady. Um, you know, his Mary Sue is more of a like a, a Miss Virgin- Miss Miss Lavinia Sue. <laughs> it's fine. That's great. Anyway, so what do you think of his take on the curator being uh, involved in the art world? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was kind of a kind of gestural in that way. It was mm-hmm. like, oh yes, there's a curator doing curatory things. You know, they are they love mm-hmm. objects and they know a little bit about art. And we had some. Kind of half assed right. discussion of surrealism, which, uh, you know, I guess made vague sense. Um, yeah. It would have been great if, while he was researching this one, he'd actually gone to Venice and gone to, you know, um, the Academia and, um, and actually looked at the audio you know, to the Penny Guggenheim collection and, and kind of looked at some paintings. Right. Okay. I, again, one other thing I was hoping, I was hoping for him to describe a real Venetian painting that I would recognize and go, oh, yeah, wow. You've actually been to Venice and you've researched this, but no, he didn't. Right. So, the, I mean, the one the one painter that he name checked was Max Ernst. Does he have any presence that you saw have seen in Venice, or? Yeah, there are Max Ernsts in the Guggenheim collection in Venice. Okay. Um, because Max Ernst, I mean, he was uh, the uh, a, a boyfriend is probably the right word the boyfriend of penny guggenheim for a while when he okay. escaped from europe so it makes sense yeah though. she was the one who sponsored mm-hmm. his his refugee status when he when he got out of europe during the war um but there were right. quite a lot of max ernst in that collection there's some awesome max ernst which they could have done more with actually mm-hmm. um i i would have liked the aliens bringing max ernst's paintings to life or something that would have been good um <laughs> or maybe his paintings were actually not surrealistic but realistic they were realistic they were depicting <laughs> actual aliens yeah you know there's a whole yeah. bunch of stuff you can do i mean again you know you i mean that kind of melty period that he was doing during the war right. i think makes sense in terms of describing a venice that is that is you know melting away they don't really make right. enough of it though uh, there could have been more of it right it's certainly an untapped plot point because he was uh, the Churchwell was talking, he was cataloging the unattributed paintings and they called out two of them, the foxes in overcoats at the volcano right. and the lady in the jar. And the doctor recognizes the foxes painting as not being of this world and it shouldn't really be here, which is another, it's a nice bit of uh, uh, world yeah. building. And it's more Holmesian rather than Chekhovian right. <laughs> where it doesn't really need to be there. But I wish they would have done more with the art and how the Duke just didn't care about art and he was condemning his own collection to the lagoon waters and just how the whole plot point, the doctor offering the TARDIS as a rescue vehicle for this this art collection and then that gets dropped right away once he realizes Charlie had ditched him. There's some interesting strands I think Mars left dangling and not woven into the bigger picture of what he was trying to convey in the story i, I think i mean we, we have this actually quite a lot when we talk about uh who's that we're not entirely happy with is mm. you and i come up with kind of better plots than we've actually just listened to or watched mm-hmm. um and i think this is kind of 
an example of this. Well, this um, well, this story really wasn't about the plot. The plot is very conventional. It's 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 a 1970s plot of say mask and mandragora meet uh, uh, underwater menace. So it's a 67. Yeah. It's a very classic Doctor Who plot. I yep. believe yep. this was the first thing that Big Finish commissioned specifically for McGann's Doctors. Right. And like you mentioned earlier, that this was recorded first in the series. So it was, it's all about establishing character and they and Mars does a lot to establish both the doctor as a romantic um, yeah. and then Charlie's whole character and background and just just the descriptive language that Mars gives for the doctor it is playing into what we learned in the TV movie in 96 that the, the this is this was to be the romantic period doctor right so for example Charlie goes, so what's so special about Venice? And McGann, as the doctor goes, it's magnificent, charming, and often quite silent and sinister. Last time I watched the light spilling from the palace windows into the Grand Canal, and all the stars looked like they were trapped underwater, bursting to get out. And just yes. that, that type of imagery. And then a bit a little bit later, he's talking about it, and sort of like, this is a doctor who likes the nighttime and likes... You know, in the shadows and he's going yes. the, the whole place lights up wonderfully at night and looks so new in the morning it all becomes desolate and ruin again and so the language that Mars gives him I think or the images that he has McGann evoke are more of a romantic uh, writer style of um, uh, imagery from a uh, than uh, say a surrealistic or right, know, or, right. or, or or something or, or more matter of fact doctor like which we, we would have gotten with Colin Baker. Yeah, and I think um, uh, you know I think even even the inclusion of you know Venice as the place yeah. the setting you know gives that kind of you know everyone every, you know everyone's dressed in velvet and they're all wearing masks probably right. and you know there's right. you know it's all night and there's there should be lovely chamber music playing, but instead it's kind of like weird Star Wars cantina music instead, you know, and it's, you know, yeah, it's the uh, it's Casanova, blah, 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 mm-hmm. um, which I think is what they were trying to do when setting it in Venice, but they didn't really, they didn't really big that up enough, actually. I was, there should have been a lot more of it. Do you think Michael Sherd was going to be like a Casanova type casting? No, but I mean, you know, it's, it's the... You know, Casanova is, you know, one of the most famous characters in Venice and, right. you know, is the kind of, you know, avatar of the kind of Venetian decadence mm-hmm. of the, you know, Napoleonic and pre-Napoleonic era in Venice. And you would have thought that they would play that up more, but mm. the kind of decadent aspect of it. But other than having, you know, the the main kind of driver of the plot being a crazy old woman. They didn't really work on that at all, actually. Right. Um, but they did in a way because she was certainly a spurned lover, <laughs> effectively. That's true. Lost, that's true. Lost in the card game. So it does have that whole has, Casanova okay, yeah. feel to it. It does have that. Yes, that, that's, that, that is true. But, you know, um, I don't know. It, it's... It would have been nice to actually have it set during Casanova's time, actually, mm. and done maybe more with that possibly would it would it have worked as well with the venice collapsing in the sea does it need to I be i mean venice is always vaguely collapsing into that's the true. sea it's been for you know, i mean since it was yeah since it was built, built. On a, yeah on the marsh yeah yeah it's built on some sandbanks i mean mm-hmm. you know it's always collapsing into the sea in some way so mm-hmm. you know you can you could you could have a uh, 
you could have a you know a momentary acceleration of that. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be the Duke. You know, it doesn't have to be the Doge of Venice. He can be like a minor Duke of some right. kind who is you know cursed to live for five hundred years. Um, right. You know, we could start out in Casanova's time um, and then end up you know in the twenty third century. That would mm, be great. That'd be interesting uh, too. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and because the doctor's got a time machine, right. they could have started out like, I'll take you to see Casanova, Charlie or something. <laughs> and then like, they go forward in time and he's still alive. You know, the right. Duke is still alive, blah, blah, blah. Oh, there's been a curse. Right. The doctor could have been in the card game where <laughs> where where the where the Duchess where was Estelle, given away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where Stella was given away. So again, I, I without pretending that I know anything about writing or making up stories or anything like that, I always find that actually if I can think of more satisfying things that could happen in a story than actually did happen in the story, then that tells me that maybe this is not the mm-hmm. best story that could have been done. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, again, the, in Mars's defense, the focus was on character and... Yeah, 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 they were not, trying to establish not on a plot. New, yeah. And so yeah. this is, I think, more of the school of an RTD story where we're going to go light on plot and what we're going to do is hang interesting characters and really the characters that we're most interested in is the, the doctor and charlie and watching their relationship and how they react to situations like charlie's reaction to being abducted or kidnapped by pietro the gondolier drugged with this hallucinogenic drug put into a, 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 a at the time they believed a dead woman's wedding dress and a mask and golden or and jeweled slippers it's kind of creepy <laughs> kind of a creepy type Thing and having her under the influence of this uh, magical drug uh, seduce this geriatric uh, duke. Yeah, which which is which uh, when you describe it like that, it sounds absolutely horrific. But she seems to think it's kind of a bit of a bit of fun. But I think that's um, her character. She's, uh, she, I mean, uh, another yeah. one. Of, uh, one of these notes I have of Charlie's character. What is Charlie's character? On one hand, she's just charmed by the doctor. On the other hand, I think she's just very frustrated by the lack of information. She may have fallen very hard for the doctor, but the doctor isn't reciprocating. Perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I actually preferred the kind of full-on um, Edwardian adventurous uh, figure that we've had in the kind of previous, at least in Storm previous yeah. two. Yeah, um, this one, uh, I wasn't really getting a strong sense of character because I, I felt the whole whole dressing up and drug thing. Like, if she's an Edwardian, Edwardian adventurous, just tell her that that's what she should be doing, and she'd do it because <laughs> it's adventuring. Right. If she's like needs to be kind of seduced by the blah blah blah, you know, fish-handed. Uh, frog-handed kind of you know glamour of Venice then she should be doing that in which right. case she wouldn't find it very amusing at all so mm-hmm. it did seem to be just kind of not neither one nor the other really in a sort of unsatisfying way it seemed very icky and just that she would laugh it off and blow it off blow, you know just casually dust it off her shoulder it seemed Maybe I interpreted more of a violation than it was in Charlie's mind. Yeah, it's, it sounded pretty violating to me. But then, you know, this is this is 2018. This was back in 2001. <laughs> Times have changed, kids. That's like 20 years ago. <laughs> Darn near, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, actually, you know, maybe times have changed. Maybe maybe we do find that kind of thing more violating mm-hmm. nowadays than I said, you know, 18 years ago. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, as, as I think the older one gets, the more one realizes that the times, they are changing. 
I suspect that the story was edited by Nick Briggs. There was some Briggsian touches in it with the T, and I think that might be in the notes that a Big Finish handed to all the writers is, right. this doctor really likes his tea. <laughs> yes, the doctor has to drink tea. And there was some full-on, I mean, you know, the kind of, the kind of moral bit that got, like, slammed in in the last episode about, like, how you shouldn't, like, you shouldn't... Yeah. You shouldn't like objects, you should like people, or whatever it was. That was, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, well, that, okay, that's that seems a little bit jarring. Um, mm. And even just the kind of, like, you know... The, the magical old woman is an, a magical alien old woman. Yes. I mean, actually, she could have just been like a magical old woman, really, right. for all that that mattered in the end. I think by making the ne- jeweled necklace an alien artifact and that the uh, Duchess uh, Stella was an alien maybe excuses the magic a little bit. I'm... Yeah, maybe. Yeah, you know, science that's sufficiently advanced to be indistinguishable yeah. for magic, blah, blah, blah. Arthur C. Um, Clarke, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So I think in the end, ultimately a little bit unsatisfying, I'm afraid. A little bit unsatisfying. There's certainly, uh, Mars is certainly setting up a beef Charlie has with the TARDIS, too. Oh, what, what was that? I missed so, that completely. The Doctor sees the TARDIS as home, obviously. When, when they're escaping that first little scene, he calls the TARDIS bold, I think it was bold, beautiful, and bright blue and waiting for us. And then, But Charlie, on the other hand, she calls it a gothic nightmare. It's she does, gloomy, actually. And she's and it calls it something out of Jules Verne. And then she goes, and this is where I think Mars does his uh, riff off of Arthur Dent's view of spaceships. He's, you know, Charlie's going for a futuristic ship. It should be all gleaming white with flashing controls and that kind of stuff. And, you know, in uh, Douglas Adams, when uh, Arthur gets on the Vogan ship, he says, it's a bit squalid. There's no gleaming control panels or flashing lights. It's just a bunch of old mattresses. And then when he gets in a heart of gold now, he goes, this is what I'm talking about. It's all right. gleaming white flashing lights. So I think the, the use of that gleaming Gleaming white was a definite callback to Douglas Adams, but but Charlie, when at the end they want she wants to get back to clean out all the doctor's junk and bric-a-brac and stuff, and just thinks it's gloomy. So I think she has a little bit of issue, maybe maybe not per se with the TARDIS, but certainly with the uh, McGann's doctor right. gloominess or his uh, Jules Verne steampunk aesthetic. Yeah, women, eh? They always want to tidy things up, don't they? <laughs> They're like, oh, I've got to tidy. It's not clean enough. Tidy it up. Throw it away. They're awful. They're a civilizing force. I can't stand them. <laughs> you can't live with them. You can't live without them. That's what I say about women. Well, be, that will be interesting with a time lady, uh, Jody. Jode Whitaker as the doctor know, will yes. be. Will will her TARDIS be a little more? Yeah, tidy. Would she be, would she be <laughs> flitting around the the TARDIS like? Um, um, I don't know, like Mary Poppins or something, making it lovely and clean. Oh, it'll just be, it's good. It's going to be fascinating to see what uh, the production team, production team <laughs> does with uh, the TARDIS for Jodie Whittaker's Doctor. Um, I, I did notice that the Big Finish was still trying to make Ramsey happen. Oh, um, God. <laughs> yes. Go on, give it up. Give it up. No one cares about Ramsey. <laughs> Nobody cares about Ramsey. <laughs> no one wants to write for Ramsey. No one knows what Ramsey's supposed to be doing. Anyway, yeah, they didn't yeah. even have Ramsey belching in this one, so it's <laughs> <laughs> what well, it's the reason why you know Mark Gatiss, who I think I I, I offered was Ramsey in the previous uh, right sort of Orion had a speaking role, so they didn't want to pay him double for <laughs> <laughs> to do his Ramsey stuff. I think um, 
<laughs> I, I'm, I'm desperate. There needs to be like a whole. There needs to be like a whole series, a whole kind of series of, of stories just about Ramsey. Well, that's what we'll just do. Like this. Ramsey. Yeah, he just does. It just makes a noise for like half an hour. <laughs> that's what we'll do this summer when we're really pressed for stuff to talk about. We'll just do the Ramsey cast. <laughs> yeah, we'll, do, we'll just do the whole thing as as Ramsey. Exactly. We'll, we'll talk about things as if we're Ramsey. Yes. Because uh, I think if anyone from the Vortisor make... perspective. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. What? <laughs> what would a Vortisor think? What would a Vortisor, What would Ramsey do? Ramsey yes. would make a belching, moaning sound. Yes. This is the Vortisor yeah. Report, episode number thirty-four. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, funny. Um, so yeah so i noticed that at the very beginning yeah and um that's her, yeah her sarcasm is pretty you know like i, I with last time it was noted that the original av production of sort of orion the doctor was pretty much companionless through the story and all the sarcastic lines were given to uh charlie in this written for mcgann's doctor charlie uses the same sort of I don't know if it's sarcasm, but I mean, she's when she finds out that Venice might, 23rd century Venice might be dangerous, she goes, uh, I mean, obviously, what I really want you to do is put me in the midst of a really life threatening situation. I'd really like that. And I'm sure you've already noticed that already, of course. You know, that type of thing and this, the complaining of, you know, it's worse than ever. You brought me somewhere horrible where everyone wants to die. And it's, she's, she seems kind of, using sarcasm to as a defense mechanism maybe i'm not sure what the characterization is because that's that's why i'm thinking that she has fallen for the doctor hard but she's trying to get a reaction out of him i i don't know i mean i think i I think they 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 dial back the sarcasm i think in subsequent charlie i mean charlie charliness as far Mm -hmm. as i remember because um, it doesn't, it, it doesn't really sit well with the character, in, in, uh, as far as I'm concerned. And it's it a bit of, it's a bit too much of a I do declare bit. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't make a huge amount of sense actually, to mm-hmm. be honest. As an Edwardian adventuress, which I think is a great piece of character, start a great kind of character starting point. It doesn't really, it doesn't really help that mm-hmm. that much. In yeah. My opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what they do with it because the next one, the AV. Uh, Minuet in Hell is another retelling of an AV story, so yeah. we shall see. Are we, are we doing Minuet in Hell? Well, I think we should, since it is... Because I remember disliking that intensely. <laughs> well, it'll be a short podcast, then. <laughs> I dislike this intensely. No, okay, you can you'll, you, you, you you can do it as a human, and I'll do it as Ramsey the Vortisaur. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. No, no. Well, of course, of Nick course, of Courtney's course, fans. We got to do that, it. That that is that is true. And, and don't worry, fans. <laughs> we will be doing it. Don't worry. Don't worry. Don't worry. Don't turn off. Don't turn off. don't 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 touch that dial. Don't touch don't that, touch that dial. Yeah. Don't touch that. Pod, yeah. Do you have a dial on your iPhone there? Yes. The, the built-in yeah. pod pod dial. The pod <laughs> dial. Exactly. Don't touch the pod dial. So. So yeah. that, there's just Anything one else. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> we've worn. I've worn you out. No, I was just gonna say there's there's one one final observation of the the yeah. whole the the arc of the character since this was a purely a, I think a character piece of right. of how the doctor is kind of the whole romance of Venice and getting Charlie there in Venice with the gondoliers and the canals, the nightlife, and then just at the end 
this is Paul Mars again writing. And it's sort of like, oh, you men, don't you realize it's all about love in the end? And this is Charlie <laughs> going and sort of like, okay, so perhaps an interesting character shift in development of the doctor bringing Charlie to this romantic situation midway through. She says, I'm, I've decided I'm going to just sit back and enjoy myself and enjoy this, even though this is a dangerous situation. And then it's her at the end uh, saying it's all about love and calling to attention this a love affair that could lay waste to a city. The doctor's response was, sounds a little inconvenient to me. And, and Charlie's going, no, it means everything. And then just the final, final line in the story is that kind of the, uh, the Tom Baker doctor, the fourth doctor and Sarah Jane. And this must be some heavy foreshadowing. Charlie goes, I hope you never abandon me like that, Doctor. And the Doctor goes, abandon you? No, I would never lose you in a game of cards either. And of course not. You're my best friend. And that's, I think, what classic Who fans like to hear of the Doctor and the Companion is right. that the person traveling with the Doctor is the Doctor's best friend at that time. Yeah, that brings a smile to our, our, our wizened, wizened <laughs> Who fan, mm-hmm. Who are hearts. Yeah, yep. yeah. So yeah, sorry, and in and in summary, um, yeah, could do uh, a bit unsatisfying. Could do better, I think. Really, mm, okay. was hoping for more. Mm-hmm. As I said, I as, I as I'm just going to repeat myself now. And I, I said I cannot remember listening to this the first time round. I know I did because it was the only Who that was around at that point. So of mm-hmm. course I listened to it. But um, yeah, it leaves a little bit to be desired. I mm-hmm. think. Okay, so I think for me it's uh, interesting character bits, but it's certainly the Chekhov alien nature of it and just how the story could have went very differently with different character decisions it wasn't necessarily uh the plot was very very lightweight for me the character bits were interesting but maybe a little conventional a very predictable story yeah good to good to hear michael sheard um nice to let mark do a, become a do a do a be a cult leader for a bit i'm sure he had a great time doing that <laughs> Um, I could have done with I could have done with Ogre, and I could have done with uh, you know a Zaroff mad scientist mm-hmm. turning gondoliers into fish people, and then I would have been very happy. Mm-hmm. Or even the cultists turning them into fish people. Yeah, through, with, with 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 magic or something. There you, you go. Know. Yeah. Enough, just, you well, know. why not go whole hog into magic? Yeah, just like they just they got a magic wand like Harry Potter, and they can just turn people into fish. Well, they people. have there that they have that alien jewel necklace they could have been using. It's that. it's it's like a magic wand, only it's in the form of a necklace. Yeah, yep. it's what you what you might call it's a female wand instead <laughs> of long and pokey. It's kind of more amorphous. Yep. Anyway, there you go. There we go. Good. Well, yeah, Stones of Venice. Um, worth a listen, but I wouldn't listen to it again. <laughs> well, not for another <laughs> seventeen years. Not for another seventeen <laughs> years, when I will hopefully be have uh, have a better things to do with my time. Anyway, yes. Right. Okay. Right. Well. Good. We've well. come to the conclusion of a episode eighty of the Metabulous Two podcast. I have been Classic talking episode. with Ben. <laughs> um, and I've been talking with David, and we've been talking about the Stones of Venice. Yes. In case you're listening to this podcast backwards. <laughs> yes. Anyway, oh, just before I forget, we did get a little bit of feedback from our last episode. We, you, oh, really? Yeah. So let me pull that up here. Um, That's good to get some feedback from our fans. Was this feedback because you were you were mentioning the inspiration of the Tesselecta? Oh yes, and you had mentioned that it was a uh, one of the uh, juvenile or, or children's comics I where was, that yes. was. 
And so our listener, Jeff Waddell, um, Jeff. Um, Jeff. tweeted in and said it was the numbskulls from Beano. The numbskulls from the Beano. Of course yep. it was the numbskulls. Yes, 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 yes. I thought the numbskulls were in Whoopi, but um, I'm, Jeff, you're right because I don't actually know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, the numbskulls. Yep. It was it was fun. I used to, I used to like the numbskulls. Mm-hmm. It was it was like it, it was a fun concept. And obviously Moffat liked the numbskulls <laughs> yes, as well. Yeah, yeah. So a really big thank you to Jeff for jogging Thanks, Jeff. our memory with that. Very good. Yeah, excellent, excellent, excellent. Cool. All right. So next next time, not sure what we're gonna do. So tune in if you still have the stamina and uh, <laughs> listen. Um, yeah, listen. It won't be. It won't be Miniet from Hell. I would. We're planning to do Genesis of the Daleks, right? Oh, is that going to be next time? What's... That'll be next time. Okay, so we know what we're going to do next time. We will be talking about the restored omnibus uh, version of Genesis of the Daleks that will be shown on the big screen in the yes. U.S. here on June 11th. So yes. we will be seeing that and. Nida's clams on the big screen. I cannot wait. <laughs> cannot uh, wait. Those clams. Those clams. Yeah. Integral part of my childhood, those clams. <laughs> well, it'll be good to see Harry and Sarah and oh, the bless. doctor on the big yeah. screen. I'm, 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 I'm kind of worried about who my fellow audience members will be, but maybe I'll just hide at the back. <laughs> in yeah, Redmond. well, I'm bringing my, I'm bringing my non-who-loving daughter to along I, I enticed oh. her enticed her with uh taking her Money. out to dinner dinner oh first. excellent so excellent. we'll see how she does with uh it's all what it's at least 45 year old television <laughs> yeah i'm wondering how well it's going to translate to a cinematic scale mm-hmm. but i'm sure it'll be fine um, I'm, I'm i am hoping... i'm i I, I might actually cosplay as Ramsey the Vortisaur. <laughs> well, I have a Tom Baker uh, Fourth Doctor scarf, so maybe I'll wear that. Do I have any Doctor Who clothes here? Hmm, I'll have to look through my uh, my, my dress-up box and see how I, if I can accessorize myself. You'll have to hit Clayton Hickman's uh, Red Bubble Shop and yes. get you something. Get something. I'll have to do that tonight, so it'll be it'll be here by next week. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Good plan. Well, wonderful. Um, uh, that's a little bit of nonsense at the end of the podcast. That David will either cut, in which case you won't hear it, or he'll leave it in, in which case you just listen to it. Yeah. Well, we, we'll find out. I could always wish us a good night again and uh, uh, yeah. weave it in like uh, so many threads of a yeah. plot. Chekhov's randomness. So, all right. Well, you've been listening to episode 80 of the Metabulous 2 podcast. I have been talking with Ben. And I have been talking with David. And until next time, good night. Good night. Well, there you go.
Thank you for listening to the Metabilis 2 podcast. You can reach us with email at metabilis2, as a number two, at gmail.com or on Twitter at metabilis2. And again, that's a number two. Hope to hear from you. Bye.